This morning, we continue with the Art of Neighboring series of sermons, and we look at what we might call the time barrier. So as we ponder the words of Jesus in the Great Commandment, we understand Jesus' words literally when Jesus says to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, after hearing Pastor Jeff's sermon last Sunday and the emphasis that he gave and the emphasis that we continue uh, to have on this this section, this series of uh, mini-series of three sermons, the emphasis to connect with our neighbors, you might be saying, well, I agree with that. I want to do that. But there is one problem. I really want to follow through with this emphasis. But there is a significant problem. How will I ever begin to fit it into my schedule? It's just another thing to do. So even though I want to have conversation and I want to follow through with my neighbors, there is this barrier, there is this, quote, problem that I can see. My days, you might be thinking, my days are already crammed full of activities. I have meetings to go to. I need to do the grocery shopping, ball games to watch with my children or my grandchildren, activities for recreation with my family. I need to work at preparing and cooking the food, cleaning the house and the kitchen, mowing the lawn, balancing the checkbook, and, of course, the necessary things of eating and sleeping and making sure I get adequate exercise and have energy to go about and stay healthy so I can do all these things. That's what we want to look at and consider this morning. Let's pray together. Thank you, God, for being here, for the presence, your presence by your spirit in our midst. And thank you for this opportunity to look into your word as we consider again the importance and taking literally connecting with our neighbors. Thank you, O God. We give and release your spirit among us. We give back to you. Amen. So I would invite you now to look at Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42. And you can see it on the screen, or if you want to, you can look in your pew Bible, page 1028 and 1029. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care? that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset 
about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Now in this passage, in this story that is recorded by the physician Luke, Martha took the initiative to invite this family friend into their home, to invite Jesus the teacher, Jesus the rabbi. And she was now busily working in the kitchen, preparing a big meal to show in the importance in biblical times, it was very important to show hospitality. So she was simply trying to to fulfill her role as, as being a good hostess for Jesus. So she was preparing this meal for the teacher and anxiously getting, trying to get the food prepared while Mary was listening to Jesus. Mary was sitting at the feet of the rabbi, the position of a student of the rabbi, a student of a teacher. That's where she was. So I would invite you to reflect with me some of the radical aspects of the story. And the first radical aspect or the first radical action is that Jesus was invited and received into a woman's home. And if you want to um, take some notes or fill in the blanks, if that helps you learn and remember what this message was about, you can do that by looking at the message notes section of the bulletin. So, this is a radical action. It's interesting to note that Luke does not mention in his account that there is a brother in the home. He simply indicates and says, this is the home of Martha. Secondly, rabbis did not allow women to become disciples and to learn from them. Yet, in this passage, Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to Jesus as if that were the normal and the usual protocol, as if that were the normal thing to do in that society. But indeed, it was countercultural. It was not following the society. So Mary broke the cultural and societal norms by listening to the, to the teaching of Jesus. And by norms there, we simply mean what are the usual part of that way of life? What are the usual things that take place in, in that society? So Martha had enough of doing all the work by herself. She was frustrated by doing all this work by herself. And notice also that she does not confront her sister Mary directly. But instead, she triangles Jesus into the situation. Rather than going directly to Mary, she wants the, she wants the word, to, the direction to come from the guest, to come from Jesus. And so she says in verse 40, the last part of 40, she came to Jesus and said, 
Lord, doesn't this seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here while I do all the work? Tell her to come and help me. So she even directs Jesus what Jesus is supposed to do. Tell her. Tell her to come and, to come and help me. And she probably, Martha probably thought that she would receive an affirmation, a commendation from the master. Well, she was the one working hard to provide hospitality. She was the one working hard to provide this big meal for, for Jesus. But instead, instead of commending her, instead of commending Martha for how hard she was working and for what she was doing, doing and keeping busy at doing, instead of commending her, Jesus recognizes and lifts up her anxiety and says that she's worried. Jesus was aware that Martha was indeed frustrated and anxious and perhaps even angry at her sister Mary for just sitting there. Sitting there, listening to Jesus and doing what was necessary. And Jesus responds further in verse 42. There's only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it, and it will not be taken away from her. Jesus is saying to Mary, and Jesus is saying to Martha, that the word of God, hearing the word from the teacher, is more important than following the cultural norm of hospitality. When the devil tempted Jesus Jesus quoted Deuteronomy 8.3, that people do not live by bread alone. Rather, we live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. That Mary, and I'll say more about this later, Mary had chosen, was able to discern what was the number one priority in this situation. Now, earlier in the chapter here in Luke 10, and it was an expert, as we saw last Sunday, an expert in the religious law who asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And in his answer, Jesus noted the fact that he must love his neighbor as himself. And so wanting to justify himself, he quickly retorts to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And in his answer, as we saw again, as we saw last Sunday, Jesus shared the story of the mercy that was shown by the Good Samaritan. And then he asked the religious leader, so now which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? And the man's answer was correct. And Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. So earlier in the chapter, Jesus was saying, do something. Go and do the same. Demonstrating kindness to the man who was born by, who was robbed by the bandits. And in that action, mercy was shown. Something needed to be done. But in this story, 
in this story of Mary and Martha, it was important and a priority for Mary to sit, to not be doing anything other than to be listening to Jesus, for Mary to sit at the feet of Jesus instead of hospitality, extending hospitality by preparing a big meal. That's all. It wasn't to continue to hustle and bustle around in the kitchen as, Mary, as Martha was doing. So Mary had discovered the necessary priority. Mary had rightly discerned that in this setting with Jesus, this master teacher, Jesus, this one who had come to fulfill the law and the prophets, Mary had rightly discerned that this was the opportune time, that this was the important thing to do, that this was the number one priority. And so I would ask us, are we, at whatever station of life or stage of life we are, are we discerning and rightly discerning the number one priority for us in our lives? Sometimes we tend to let the urgent responsibilities, such as preparing a meal, crowd out the most important priorities of this life. And are we missing the main things of what God is calling us to do? The main things, are we missing those main things because we are so busy, like Martha, trying to take care of all the other things of our lives and all the other good things that we are doing. It was a good thing that Martha was preparing the meal. But that was still not the most important, Jesus says. So I want to illustrate the principle of priorities and keeping the main thing the main thing and uh, want to do this by a bit of a video that I found on YouTube. It's from the more of the secular time management, but I think it still portrays an important truth that you will need to read about. You'll hear the, the description of the, of the illustration, and then you'll need to read on the screen as they go about the, uh, uh, the story. So we'll watch that. At, and this comes from back in the 80s, as they say, um, and that's been a long time ago. But there's Stephen Covey who, um, uh, who promoted this. Getting distracted by little things in life is easy. By starting your day with trivial activities, you will not have the time for the things that actually matter. Whether you are a businessman, mother of four, or a professional, anyone can lose focus of the things that are important in life and fill precious time with meaningless things. In the 80s, Stephen Covey taught the importance of prioritizing the important things in life, which will enable you to do more than you ever thought was possible. His concepts still apply to life today. Even if you think you know all of this already, the visualization metaphor really hits home. This demonstration from the seven habits of highly effective people will change how you prioritize. If you lack focus and want to do more important things in your day, you have to check out this life-changing video.
Well, there's never enough time to do everything. There's always enough time to do the most important things. Please subscribe to my... So, in our lives, we need to discern which are the big rocks as we go through our lives and to put those in first. That's what Jesus is, that's what Jesus is saying. Uh, that's what Jesus is saying in this passage, that Mary had chosen the better part. She knew which one was the big rock of listening to Jesus. So, as we look at the life of Jesus, Jesus was not in a hurry, but he got a lot done. It was Jesus who put the big rocks of prayer, the big rocks of getting away from, from uh, the disciples and getting away from the crowds and taking time for himself and taking time to spend with his Father. We have that continually in the, light, in the life of Jesus in the Gospels. And as we see in this passage, Jesus spent time with his friends. He developed a relationship with them. So, in the other Gospels, we see that Jesus lived in a rhythm, a rhythm of ministry and withdrawal. He slowed down and spent time in prayer and also in solitude. And when the disciples were looking for him, then he came to them again. Jay Pathak and Dave Runyon state in the book, The Art of Neighboring, when we say, I don't have time to get to know my neighbor, what we're really saying is, I don't consider getting to know my neighbor as important as everything else that I do, end of quote. So in other words, we're saying that getting to know my neighbor is not one of the big rocks, even though Jesus said we need to love our neighbor as ourselves, that getting to know our neighbor is not really one of the big rocks and not important in my life. So, and we continue to live in a tension between the urgent and the important, between the sand, as illustrated in, in the Covey illustration, between the sand and the big rocks. And when our priorities are determined by the urgent, our lives, these two authors say, our lives will not match up to our intentions. Anna and I have good friends who recently retired from living overseas for the past, past five years. And as they decided in their retirement, as they decided on a place to live here in the U.S., in this country, they agreed that their first priority was to learn to know their neighbors in the place that, that they decided that they felt God was leading them to. And as a newly retired couple they also decided to limit, at least for the first year, their outside volunteer engagements so that they would have time as they, as a couple, take a break in the mid-morning and drink coffee together. And many times, particularly, of course, the, the summertime, they can sit out on their porch as they do this and welcome them as other people see them, welcome other neighbors to come and relate to them during this time. Now, last Sunday, as Jeff already mentioned, we had this, this who is my neighbor and this chart to, to fill out. And in the case of this couple, 
they not only know the names of their neighbors, they also know, part B, some relevant information to each of their neighbors. And also, for many of the neighbors, they know some in-depth information. Now, the psalmist in Psalm 90, in Psalm 90, verse 12, says, Teach us to realize the brevity of life so that we may grow in wisdom. So we realize and ponder the brevity of life when we are faced with and experience the death of someone who is close to us. We realize how brief life is. So as we ponder the brevity of life, we then learn how to live. We learn how to keep the main thing the main thing. Westerman says, and I quote, a wise heart is the prize of the one who knows his own limits because he's aware of the limits of human existence, end of quote. So, going back to the illustration again in the video, the, the jar is the limits of time, the limits of our human existence. And we can accept the reality that our time is finite. And none of us know when the last day is that we will spend on this earth, the last day. In one of my former pastorates, a man who was my age was diagnosed with mesothelioma, which is caused by working with asbestos, by coming in contact with asbestos. And as he reflected and the doctor shared the diagnosis, he recalled that he worked uh, in his father's construction business as a young man, and now then was dealing with this disease. And as Dave accepted his diagnosis and that it was useless to receive treatment because by the time they discovered it, it was far advanced. And he said to me, I have lived a full life. I am ready to die. Now that really hit me because he was my age. But Dave accepted the reality that his time on earth was almost gone and felt that he had successfully carried out his mission, what God had given him to do. But one of his main concerns was that his grandson, his four, I believe his grandson was four years old, and that his grandson might forget him. Brian Mavis stated, and I quote, in this life we can do only a few things really well, I think it's a good idea to make certain that one of those things is what Jesus says is most important. And of course, what Jesus said was most important is to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the authors of the book, The Art of Neighboring, have identified three myths that we're tempted to believe about our lives, our busy, busy lives, three myths. And I'll just list list these and make some comments. Myth number one is that things will settle down someday. And they say the truth is that things will settle down when you die or when you get intentional about adjusting your schedule. So 
as they suggest, we tell ourselves, well, if I can just make it till next Wednesday, till I get this project done, then things will be fine. But what really happens when next Wednesday come, uh, there will be a new deadline looming and there's something else for us to, to be concerned about. Or we can tell ourselves, when our children start school, or when our children finish school, when our children graduate from college, when our children do this, then things will settle down, then things will be at a more normal pace. But those events generally, those events happen, and we are just as busy as ever. Myth number two is more will be enough. And with this myth, we convince ourselves that we're just one more purchase or achievement away from contentment. So if we could do more, if we could be more, then we would not be so busy, we would be content. And as soon as we purchase or achieve whatever, or obtain whatever it is that we wanted, they suggest there's always something more shiny, something that we want, something out there, something more alluring around the corner, as they put it, end of quote. The last myth that they identify is everybody lives like this. So this makes us believe that being overly busy is simply a way of life in our culture and we need to continue to carry out the, that way of life. We need to follow suit to living at a frantic pace of life. Author John Ortberg has coined the phrase hurry sickness and Ortberg writes that hurry is the great enemy of our spiritual life in our day. That love and hurry are fundamentally incompatible. Love always takes time, and time is one thing that hurried people do not have. Now, I will confess, and I'll confess before each of you, that there are some times that I am afflicted with hurry, sickness, and that therefore my spouse gently needs to remind me that I need to be in the moment at the present time and not be thinking about and expecting what will happen next. I need to savor the moment and to be fully present in this time and in this place. As I was preparing the sermon, I recalled an incident that I had some years ago. And after my father died and my mother was living alone here in Lancaster County and we were living somewhere else in the U.S., we were visiting back here in Lancaster County. And since my mother did not, did not have a license to drive, uh, I offered to take her grocery shopping. And as I recall, I believe we were at uh, Shady Maple. And as I took her to go shopping for the groceries, I discovered something new that my sisters had known already, and that was buying bananas for my mother was an exacting science, something that needed to be done very, very carefully and discreetly. And needing to check the bananas, to be examined carefully, to make sure that they're no black marks or mushy spots on the bananas, and carefully examining each banana before the, the bunch would be put in the basket. 
So I tried to hurry her along by suggesting that indeed to take this particular bunch. Finally, finally, we could move away from the bananas and a decision was made. But I doubt, I really doubt as I reflect back now, and this is probably the reason, I'm sure there's a reason I remember this, is I doubt that mom felt loved by her son by me trying to hurry her along rather than carefully working with her and gently uh, being patient as she examined each banana. Now some takeaways. Uh, how do we apply this sermon? And that is, I would invite you to take time for reflection on your life and your commitments at this stage of your life. And these first two takeaways, uh, or these two takeaways are listed in the bottom part of the message notes. Are you allowing the main things to be the main thing? Are you putting important things first, important things like learning to know your neighbors? Secondly, I would invite you to take a walk around your neighborhood and greet the people whom you meet. And if you already know the name, then take the next step in having a brief conversation with them and learning to know something about them. And I would invite you to work on filling this paper out, and I would like invite you to put this on your refrigerator door so that you can see where you're at as you fill out this paper and as a reminder that this is a goal for you to, to work on, that this is a priority. Put it on your refrigerator door. Linda Poon writes, quote, Few Americans today say they know their neighbors' names and far fewer report interacting with them on a daily basis. Economist Joe Courtright reported that only 20% of Americans, only 20% spent any significant time interacting with their neighbors. It's not that we're making an active decision not to talk with our neighbors. It's just that we prefer to spend our precious time can you guess what it might be? Texting friends, Skyping family, chatting on online forums, or even spending time alone with Netflix. Courtright's report notes that we spend, at, in this culture now, in this time, we spend 19 hours a week, average, spend 19 hours a week watching TV. And that's up from 10 hours in the 19 back, way back in the 1960s. That's the end of that particular quote from Linda Poon. So we are tempted to spend time with our technology, spend time connecting on Facebook and social media, and that is a reality. But we also need to keep the main thing the main thing by connecting authentically face-to-face -face with our neighbors also. In Luke 10, I want to point out that Mary lived a counter-cultural life. Mary lived and lived out a counter-cultural aspect by listening to Jesus rather than working in the kitchen. So I'm challenging all of us 
to live in a counter-cultural fashion, not just following what our culture is doing, but to go against the culture and to say, I will take time to learn to know my neighbors. So I invite you to follow through and take away this sermon to follow through and learn to know the, even the in-depth aspects of your neighbors. We'll share in a closing song.